Engage Sessions. The NSR Media Network presents Sessions, bringing you behind the scenes and into the lives of your favorite music artists. And now, here's your host, Barry Davis. And we are back for another week of music, talk, excitement, and uh, some wonderful conversations on the program. This week, we'll be joined by Canadian music legend Murray McLaughlin, who has two new singles, and they're both related to each other in a way. Tom and I will explain that on the program. A very interesting guy, uh, a legend in the industry, Tom, and uh, really looking forward to that conversation. But up next, uh, we've got a lot of news to talk about, including uh, a promotion of a very cool guest that we're going to be having on the show in a few weeks. Before everyone gets overly excited, uh, <laughs> we are not having Belinda Carlisle on the show, but uh, the, the woman who wrote the lyrics and was a main songwriter of the band, but she wrote the lyrics to Vacation whilst on a plane, we're going to speak with the bass player of the Go-Go's. Kathy Valentine. Kathy Valentine. And Tom, uh, she has a, a relatively new book out right now that you and I are both reading. And I'm a little further along yep. in it than you are. Holy crap. First of all, I highly, highly, highly recommend this book as one of, one of the better rock biographies that I've written. And I'm not just saying that because we're, we're getting her on the program. I really love this book. But uh, you'll be amazed, uh, especially if you're a parent, <laughs> you'll be amazed at what this woman uh, had lived through by the time she was 12 years old. And you're not there yet, so I'm not going to give it away. No, yeah, no, no, no. I'm I'm loving it actually so far. It's, you know, I'm at the point in the book where she's just playing with the Go Go's for the first time, and and it's actually it's kind of hooked me pretty good right off the get go. And and you know, you keep telling me all this crazy stuff is about to happen, and I, and I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, because she goes back in time. So like the early part of the book is it's kind of like highlighting the highlight of her career, which was when she joined the Go Go's, and then. Mm -hmm. You go back in time and you you hear this this incredible story and really really looking forward to uh, our chat uh, with Kathy and we're going to be doing it over Zoom which is cool as well so uh, you may find now this week we we're not zooming nope. we did not zoom with Murray McLaughlin uh, he, he's you know some of the uh, you know more experienced folks of the world don't like the technology so uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing it as a over the phone but. Uh, Kathy Valentine will be talking to via Zoom, so it's going to be really, really cool. I make sure I have my GoGo album covers in the background. I listen as someone that likes kind of like that raw, punkish, poppy type sound. I don't think this band gets enough credit. They're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that could be for the fact that they didn't have a lot of material before mm -hmm. they broke up. I think they had four albums in total, so yeah. it's not a lot of material. But when you judge the impact that this band had on rock and roll, when you judge the impact that this band had on female musicians, and I'm not talking singers, I'm talking musicians, female drummers, guitarists, bass players, to get out there, form all-girl groups, I think most of them will look at the Go-Go's and, and, and point and say they're the influence, they're the reason why. Yeah, and and you know what? It's, it's going to be another fantastic female bass player that we get 
a chance to talk to. And, you know, the Our Lips Are Sealed is actually one of my favorite bass lines of all time. No way. Oh, it's Which it's is very that, cool. And you know yeah. that she she never played bass until she joined the Go-Go. She was yep. a guitarist. And that is, you know, she plays bass like a guitarist. And because you play both, you can totally relate to that about being able to incorporate uh, yeah. some of the guitar riffs in a bass line. Likewise, I notice that when you start playing guitar, you're able to incorporate bass riffs into your guitar playing, which I'm noticing when we do our uh, little Beatles duo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's that, you know, it's, you know, and the bass line thing, and back to Our Lips Are Sealed, that's a perfect example of a tune that, like, if we were going to cover that on the guitar, I wouldn't be able to, to play a version of it that didn't incorporate the bass line because it just wouldn't feel yeah. right. <laughs> and I've started digging deeper into their catalog, and I tell you what, there are some amazing bass lines in that band. Yeah, yeah. And and what what and you know what really made them groundbreaking is because back then there were very many there were a few female bands like the Runaways, right? That, mm -hmm. that uh, Joan Jett was a part of and Lita Ford. But bands that were all female that wrote their own material and you know uh, played their own instruments. Yep. That was quite groundbreaking at the time. And you know what you know you know what you never see? I think it'd be really cool. A, a, a band with four women and one dude. Can you imagine being the one dude in the band? It's because the dude never survives. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Four women with one guy. The four women get smart enough, quick enough to go, we don't need this dude. Let's get him out yeah. of here. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's ruining the whole dynamic. <laughs> so we'll be uh, having that conversation the next few weeks. Uh, we're also... Hopefully for next week's show, we'll be chatting with Alan Frew uh, because Glass Tiger has put out a Christmas album. And between that and working my day job at a uh, department store, and please don't get mad at me. It, I, it's not my fault that our box store, Bass Pro, is open. <laughs> and I know a lot of people are upset about that, but it, it's nothing to do with me. It's my job and I go to it. However, as I digress... We are uh, starting to hear a lot of Christmas music pumping through the speakers during the course of a day. And mm -hmm. it made me think of, you know, some of the, the rock and roll Christmas songs that I enjoy and some of the rock and roll Christmas songs that really start to get on my nerves. Um, the one that will never, ever, ever get on my nerves, and it will always uh, be something that, that means something to me, and I think it is very uh, fitting for the year 2020, uh, it, of course, is is this one, uh, Happy Christmas War is Over from John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Oh, yeah. This is a fantastic tune. This is one of the good Christmas songs. Yes. And not only is it a great message, but uh, they, they had kids singing on it. Uh, wherever they were in New York, they were able to get a, a group of kids to come and sing on the song. And when you listen to the chord progression, it is just mm -hmm. so, it's so Lennon, right? He, if you're a musician, you don't understand exactly what I'm talking about. It was just a certain way of, of a progression that John Lennon would have that, uh, you know, was very distinctive of his. One I keep hearing at work all the time is the Beach Boys' Little St. Nick, and I don't despise this. I don't love it. It's just a cute song. You know, oh, it's a I, cute song. I can't stand this song. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, how I, about we go? Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, no. I, my, my wife and I actually have like an ongoing joke about this song. So, and it's yeah, it's it. This song has driven me crazy since the first time I heard it. I think. 
Okay, well, let's go completely off the board and go from a Christmas song to a comedy Hanukkah song. And you know what? The first time I heard this from Adam Sandler on Saturday Night Live, I thought it was pretty funny. And it's still it's still pretty funny, but you don't like this one either? I love the Hanukkah song. Are you kidding oh, me? Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, you're telling me I don't like any of these songs. Yeah. No, 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 no. Just that last one. Okay. Now, <laughs> uh, one that has become synonymous for Christmas. And, you know, I've heard covers of this, but it doesn't make sense to do a cover of it because there's like 50 musicians on it. And uh, this was a huge, huge thing back in 1984 when Bob Geldof uh, ended up gathering together some of the biggest names in British pop music. Surprisingly, uh, no Paul McCartney on this, but uh, you had Phil Collins and Bono and Boy George and Sting and George Michael. And I remember when this video first came out and just thinking, first of all, what a powerful voice Bono has. Yep. And secondly, how cool it is to see all these greats performing together in a song. And it, you know, and it led to, you know, we are we are the world and uh, the, uh, what's the, the Canadian Oh, one? the Canadian one. Oh, man. Yes. I always forget what it is, and I love the Tears song. Tears are not enough. That's it. That's it. Tears are not enough. Well, and that was Corey Hart in that one that was really Yeah, Corey well, Hart right? and Mike yeah. Reno and yeah, Bruce Colburn had a line in there, and the, the dude from Platinum Blonde is in it, and uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's an underrated Christmas song, I think, outside of Canada. That's yeah. a great tune. This one that we're about to play is probably one of the most polarizing Christmas songs. People don't like this one at all, and I, I love it. I, it just puts me in a cheery Christmas mood. It's, this was put out in 1979 when Paul McCartney was probably uh, on the verge of being not cool for the first time in his career. You know? <laughs> and uh, I like this one. I don't know. It's just This one doesn't bother me at all. You? I love it. Yeah, it's it, it makes me happy. Okay. You know what? And that, that's that's all I'll say about that. Yeah, I. Yeah, that was good for scum. I'm not a huge. I'm not a huge fan of Mariah Carey, but for some reason, this is another one that I like. Uh, all I want for Christmas is you. I, I don't know why, but I just I don't mind hearing it. Yeah, I'll give you that. Yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll give you yeah? that. Yeah. Seriously. Yep. Wow. I'm actually I'm actually quite surprised. Now, um, you're a huge fan of the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, and see, there's they've my got first a couple. Song. I know there's one called Christmas Time that yes. it's really, really good. Yeah, and so yeah, I, I don't mind when you hear something that's not uh, a cover of an old Christmas song if it's something completely different. However, on the other hand, uh, in the early '80s or maybe it was the late '70s. No, it had to be the late '70s because John Lennon was still alive, and so was Bing Crosby because that was when David Bowie and Bing Crosby, the most bizarre duo ever. Yeah, but man, it works. This. Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't realize now that we're listening to all these that there's actually a lot of really good rock and roll Christmas songs yeah. out there. Uh, whenever we are in We Ain't Petty and we back in, remember in the old days when we used to do gigs? I was wondering when we were getting to Christmas all over. Oh yeah. Yeah, I love <laughs> that one too. And I, I brought that up to the guys a few years ago because we had a a gig coming up in, in mid-December. I said, we got to learn the the Christmas song, you know, and we did, and uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Brian Adams has a good one, something about Christmas time, and he also does Run yeah. Run Rudolph. But I, I like the the Brian something Adams about one. Christmas time is a great one. Yeah, and I think he wrote that too. I don't think that's a cover. I don't ever remember hearing that one. Before. <laughs> so, and uh, of course, how can you forget um, the Eagles and this one, which to me 
you, you listen to the music here uh, on Bells Will Be Ringing, it is completely Oh Darling by the Beatles. And listen to the bass line and the drums. It is like a total ripoff of that. Yeah, but it, again, it works. <laughs> Creative yes, reinvention, it right? I like it. It's. I wonder how hard it is. I mean, we're both... Or I wouldn't say we're uh, experienced, prolific songwriters, but we both like to write music and stuff. I would think trying to write a Christmas song would be a challenge because you, you don't want it to come off as sounding too cheesy. Yep. Yet at the same time, uh, you also don't want it to come off as too frivolous either. I mean, it, you have to have some kind of meaning behind it. So um, to me, I think that's a challenge. Yeah, you know what? I think it's funny you mentioned Christmas time by the Smashing Pumpkins, and I, th I think that was one for me. I love the the mood of that tune because I think it walks that line. You know, it's 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 happy, it's comforting, but there's that little sort of melancholy in it, and it's um, it, it, it's really well done. And then you can go to the opposite, uh, Candy Cane Lane by Sia. I don't know if you've ever heard that tune. You mean Sia? Sia, is it Sia? Oh, there we go. Come it's on, Sia. come on, man. Listen, I'm not, I'm not hip with all the new names. You know, I'm, as long as I get close, I'm happy. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, um, we're gonna go from a Christmas song to a brand new song and talk about songs with meaning. Uh, check this out. This is brand new music from legendary Canadian Murray McLaughlin. This song is called "The One Percent." We'll be back with Murray. In just a moment, there is Tom Forth. I'm Barry Davis, and you're listening to Sessions. Looking out for number one, that's what a lot of us have done. Some get bigger, others fall. Some get none, some take it all. Some people work hard every day to make sure that things stay that way. Most of the world behind the fence, looking the one percent Gonna need a bigger boat to keep the human race afloat while some Change that's gonna come. 
there is brand new music from Murray McLaughlin. The song is called The 1%, and Murray is uh, certainly in a class of his own. I don't know if you'd, you'd call you 1% Murray, but uh, there are not many Murray McLaughlins out there. And uh, first of all, welcome to the program. What a fantastic song, and uh, we're going to definitely get into the genesis of your double A side that you have going on. But first, for just for, from a point of a musician, uh, I have to ask off the top, how has COVID changed the way you make music uh, over the last several months? Well, the only thing it's changed, Barry, is I haven't been able to do any live concerts. Uh, I actually had to cancel 27 shows oh, because mercy. of this, because all, all the theaters closed down. We had a number of touring dates booked. And, you know, it, it's, you know, it ha- certainly it hasn't affected me. I never thought, I really never thought I'd miss it as much as I do. Um, you know, it's it's no secret that if you're a songwriter, the only real way you have to gauge how successful you are is when you go and play them for people and get some kind of feedback on whether or not they land or not. But I think, you know, again, I have that to fall back on and I have you know, a lot of activities, creative activities that I can fall back on. I think it's a lot harder on the people that I work with. Um, the tour promotion company, Shantaro Productions, that does my concert tours. Um, the musicians that I work with, I mean, they're all, what you know, without going on too long, I mean, one of the reasons I, I started bringing this recording project home a little bit earlier than I planned to was in order to, you know, try and, keep my my musical friends working Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know the reason i wanted to ask you about that off the top was simply because with so many musicians uh, like myself and tom as well we're not performing anywhere this you know over the whole summer so it's given us time to kind of sit back and reflect on life and maybe it goes into songwriting or goes into just our everyday way that we try to carry ourselves but for you murray um knowing just how topical uh, this is, the systemic racism issue is right now. Um, did you have some time to, that you've reflected over the last little while that kind of maybe inspired you or make you feel compelled to write this? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was very blessed to have a place to go to during, uh, well, really from the early spring right through until almost uh, the end of the first week in November. Uh, you know, kind of a, a wild place where I could watch the water. And that's very mm-hmm. conducive to thinking a lot. So um, I, I was able to really do what I like to do best, which is to get myself out of the way and let whatever is going to come out, come out. And of course, you know, I'm not unique in this, but the things that have been happening in the world for both the long term and the short term have had a really profound effect on me. Um, of course, I think everyone uh, was shocked and horrified at the killing of George Floyd on basically on television. Mm-hmm. And it led to a, like a global revulsion, uh, uh, just a, a massive feeling of, okay, I mean, this has just gone far enough. This is, this is too much. This is crazy. And it is too much. So, you know, in the case of that song, I live on a white cloud. I had to really look, you know, way way down deep inside myself and go, okay, what's there? 
and um, the song is a reaction to to doing that. Um, I mean, I have a lot of songs that I've written, and I'm hard at work on finishing an album, and many of them are really quite um, to the point in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are to the point in quite a different way. Um, probably my, one of my favorite songs on this collection that nobody's heard yet. It's called a, a Thompson Day, mm. and uh, what it is, it's it sort of juxtaposes my experience of standing beside the painting, the West Wind in the art gallery, and just being blown away by it all these many many years. You know, it's I know it's a, an iconic painting. It's it's almost a cliche because it's been on so many high school and grade school walls and such. But it has an enormous impact when you actually see the thing. And then there you are standing on a lake watching, you know, a wind roaring out of the west and blowing those white caps before it and watching the, you know, the trees bend in the wind. And at, and at moments like that, you realize that, you know, there's, there's a moment that you're in. And the moment that you're in is very special and life is very, very ephemeral. You know, you, you're, you're here and you're gone. And in the big kind of span of things, you're here and you're gone, and it really doesn't matter all of that much. <laughs> so, you know, I, I try and write about a lot of those things, um, as well yeah. as the things that are really, really topical and to the point. You know, so yeah, well, I, I went I went pretty deep when I was writing. For you sure. know, speaking about you know, uh, back to the track, I live on a white cloud, and you know, obviously that was kind of sparked by the George Floyd incident um but you know talking about where it started you know if if you have one hope or if you had one hope while you were writing it as an artist for how it was going to be received you know what would that be if the, if someone's going to listen to this tune and get one takeaway from it what would you as the as the songwriter as the singer what would you want it to be well my my fervent hope was that the people who for whom it was intended would hear it people of color, First Nations people, they would hear it and they would go, okay, because it's not really about, you know, okay, coming to terms with our history anymore. It's not really about me, a culpa anymore. It's okay, where do we go from here? You know, we admit, we admit that this is the case, that there is this systemic racism and it's against all people of color. It's not just black people. It's, mm-hmm. it exists, First Nations people, Asian people, it's, you know, it's it's just part of the makeup of human beings, but it's something that I think we have to face and something that we have to work our way through. And it's not just enough to, you know, apologize for the wrongs that have been historically done. It has to be a kicking off point where we go, okay, so what are we going to do about it? How do we make this better? You know, writing songs with a purpose like this, I mean, this is something that, you know, I can recall John Lennon, you know, give peace a chance, power to the people. And even from your early stages, uh, I'd have to think Farmer's Song was something that you had a thought, Hurricane of Change. Uh, you know, how you had songs back then. Is it interesting that there were, seems to be a, a gap in music history where there really weren't a lot of songs that were written about important issues that was just more frivolous you know, cars, girls, booze type of songs for many years? Well, uh, you know, to be fair, I think that 
um, you know, I got <laughs> I have to choose my words because I don't have an axe to grind about the music industry, but um, you know, I don't exist very well with the term uh, the music business because it has about it a whole different set of values than the ones mm-hmm. that you're talking about there. Mm-hmm. And at the time that, you know, at at the time that, you know, people like Bob Dylan were writing "Blowing in the Wind." I mean, the hit parade was alive and well with songs about "Ooh, baby, I love you." It's, that sort of never stopped. And also the music business as such is extremely disposable. And, um, you know, like, I guess sometimes I look at what goes down and, and I go, okay, well, I just saw, like, I think it was a Costco commercial or something that was using hip hop music as the backdrop. And I go, well, that's the end of that. So, you know, when something becomes like so prevalent that it's just sort of the background music for commercials, I think people are waiting for the next big thing. But that's it. It's always the next big thing. It's always the next big trend. So it's a fashion and it's like sports. That's what the music business is. It's completely and utterly disposable. Now, what I'm involved in and what the people that I really love in, and I could name a lot of writers from Loudon Wainwright through John Prine to you know, more current Canadian people or even hit makers like John Mayer. I think these people are into something a little bit more substantive and something that tries to deal with, you know, I hate, I mean, the, it's a cliche word, but I think what we're trying to do is make art. Yeah. Do you see, you know, these two tunes in particular, kind of looking at the social responsibility aspect of it, um, you know, do you see enough artists out there trying to make a positive difference right now by releasing material like this with such a strong social theme behind it? Or or is it something that the artist community as a whole should, or not should, but could maybe strive to, to do better at? Um, I, th- I think there's people trying to do that. Um, I think it's more... Uh, easy for people like that to kind of wind up out in the weeds because it's never going to be uh, something mainstream. I mean, I guess, you know, forgetting for a second the idea of writing about social issues um, and look at the idea of like where your artistry grows. I mean, when Joni Mitchell started getting extremely jazz oriented, uh, she kind of like disappeared from mainstream media at the same time because as brilliant as the material she was making it really wasn't accessible it was long and it wasn't particularly radio friendly as that existed at the time so you know she kind of you know disappeared from the mainstream at that point and became like a kind of boutique or a niche artist so mm-hmm. yeah there's I, there's certainly people there's been people around for a long time i mean billy braggs or you know <laughs> I mean, there's been a lot of people who've been like, you know, working at that for really a long time, and they have like a really great following. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think it's ever really disappeared. Um, it's just, you know, things come and go in that in the respect that like it's the flavor du jour, and and people sort of pay more attention to it at a given time. But I think there is really, um, there's sort of like these timeless moments when songs are incredibly important and uh you know you go back to something i mean it's an american example but you go back to like you know that massive kind of million person march on washington you know when Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. Pete Seeger and John Baez, everybody <laughs> up there were singing, you know, We Shall Overcome. And it was like, you know, the, the music propelled the civil rights movement and the civil rights movement propelled the music. But the thing about it is the civil rights movement has never really stopped. Yeah. You know, at, at that time, it was a particular aspect of it. It was about voter registration. It was about black enfranchisement. It was about the, you know, end of the evil of the residue of, of, of slavery. But, you know, the human rights movement has has grown out of that uh, to recognize that everybody has rights, no matter what your stripe or your persuasion or your religion or your orientation or your color, that everybody has the same rights and it's very very difficult um to really sort of see that continuity but i think people should murray you mentioned Joni mitchell and it made me think of you know her getting her start in yorkville and and i know you were you spent time playing in yorkville and uh, we've had david clayton thomas on the show talking about his time there um from your perspective and, and you know tom and i have both played in you know clubs and such you know, over the last 30 years, but we never experienced what the club at life was for musicians in the coffee houses back in the, in the early seventies. Can you describe what that was like to be a part of? Um, easily. (laughs) There was a circuit of clubs in Canada and the United States. Uh, the preeminent ones during my time when I was coming up were, um, the riverboat in Toronto, uh, the Bitter End in New York, which I played a lot. Uh, Barrel of Old Town in Chicago, where John Prine came up. Um, past scenes in Boston, uh, the Great Southeast Music Hall in Atlanta, Georgia. There was a whole bunch of these clubs. And sort of, they were kind of like a circuit. And the club owners, for instance, my the guy who became my manager, or one of my managers, Bernie Fiedler, uh, formed with these other club owners a sort of block booking circuit and they would put um, artists through the whole chain of clubs and that was a stepping stone into doing university concerts and festivals and then if you kind of succeeded in that level then the next thing you knew you were in concert halls like Massey Hall or the Orpheums or something so it, it was not really something, you know, you didn't really go and play those clubs thinking of a springboard, but they had a lot of prestige attached to them. Like if you felt, if you were playing the bitter end in New York, you were like, you were doing something like you felt like was pretty cool. It was pretty worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Um, It had a great reputation. You knew who had played there before. Most certainly, you know, that you knew the people that had come up through there. You know, when I was a teenage person, I mean, I went to the riverboat before I ever played there and I watched people like Phil Oaks and I watched, you know, Jesse Colin Young and the Young Bloods. You know, I watched Ramblin' Jack Elliott. Wow. You know, okay, a whole <laughs> number great number of people there. And I would half the time I would watch them from the back stairs because I couldn't get in the club. So, you know, they had, there was a real kind of cachet to being able to play those places. And you really did feel that you were important when you were able to actually headline one of those places. Tom? Yeah, wow. That's it's it's just a, a, another world entirely. Um, you know, when when you look at what artists, especially up and coming artists, uh, and I don't know uh, how many coffee houses or, or, or concert halls you've you frequented before COVID, but um, you know, 
what you're seeing the artists going through today, uh, struggling to get their music out, struggling to to even get you know space playing in a live venue for an audience at all, um, you know, what what are your thoughts about that? Looking you know and kind of comparing it to how you did, um, you know, is it is it better? Is it is it worse? Uh, and and do you do you see any hope for it maybe changing and maybe us going back to an environment that does maybe embrace live music a little bit more? Well, the, the first thing, like harking back to the previous topic, is the important thing about those clubs that you mentioned was they were listening rooms. Um, they were quite different from bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally speaking, they didn't serve alcohol, so you didn't go there to get drunk and you know watch your, you know your friends you know hang out or whatever. You went there actually to listen to the music that the person was playing. They were music rooms, and it's very difficult to find places like that anymore. There are a few, certainly in in Toronto, there are a number of small but really rabid kind of listening rooms. Mm-hmm. The big difference, I think, for people trying to emerge now is the internet. It's it you know on the one hand, it's really democratized and made uh, everything much more accessible, but at the same time, it's in, it's because there's so much, it's really very difficult, I think, to break through and to get. Um, noticed and also the nature of the beast now is because the traditional kind of structures of the music uh, business have changed and broken down that you know young artists who are coming up have to do a lot of different jobs and they have to wear a lot of different hats so they have to maintain a website they have to blog they have to do a lot of self-promotion. They have to do a lot of this and a lot of that. And all of that takes, I think, time away from the time where they should be doing what they do best, which is to write and create music. Murray, if uh, the current you at the age of 72, sorry to tell everybody, uh, were able to go back in time 50 years and talk to the 22-year-old Murray McLaughlin and give him one piece of advice, what would you say to yourself at 22? Do exactly what you're doing. Really? That's a fantastic yeah. answer. So that that's a, uh, I have no regrets on anything that I went through. No, regrets are for suckers. I'll tell you, my <laughs> one of my favorite episodes of Star Trek, <laughs> that was Star Trek, uh, The Next Generation, of course. Yes. Was when Q gave Picard the opportunity to live his whole life again and make the smart decisions. Mm-hmm. And the result was that he never, ever rose above Ensign. Yeah. Wow. That is fantastic it's a really, advice. It's it, a great ep- It's a wonderful episode. It's brilliant, brilliantly I, written. I remember that vividly. Yeah, that's right. He always played it safe. He had that neat teal uniform on in it, too. Everybody exactly. went crazy about that. It was the first time Picard was outside a uniform. <laughs> so, yeah, Jeez. I mean, as a person, I mean, if I was looking at my... T- the the interesting thing about being a songwriter is it's kind of like keeping a diary. You know, you can go back and you can look at stuff that you wrote when you were 19 or 20 years old and listen to it and go, so who was that person? And do I, do I still like him? But more importantly, would he still like me? Mm. That's the really important thing. But I had a really... One of the influential people in my life was a guy named Bart Scholes. He used to do all of the covers for true north records and the graphics and uh he used to come up with sayings 
And one of the things he said to me once was, um, the purpose of life is not to become somebody when you're 80 that you would have hated when you were 18. Whoa. <laughs> That's pretty deep. <laughs> That's yeah. Well, yeah. Bart, Bart was a pretty smart is I'm sorry. A yeah. pretty smart guy. Uh, speaking of, of songwriting, what's the approach like for you now compared to when you are younger and you, are trying to impress the record company and you're probably trying to sell as many records as you can. And you know, there's always that kind of outside pressure. Is it just more of a love and a passion for you now than it would have been at the well, beginning um, of your career? The first thing without, without being insulting, I have to back you up. I never wrote a song for any of those reasons. Oh, ever. okay. Well, that's interesting. I was very, very fortunate to uh, fetch up, with an independent record label that was just forming called True North Records. Right. Bruce and Colbert was had, on that label, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Bruce and I were label mates. We were the first two artists on the on the label. And we basically had the uh, you know, a manager, record company owner who completely went to bat and you know, would and gave us the absolute freedom to do whatever the hell we thought we should be doing. That's pretty rare in this business. Um, there are very few people who ever did that, you know, like maybe people like Ahmed Erdogan, like music people mm -hmm. who really understood, or maybe John Hammond Sr., uh, who really could see something and, you know, and appreciate that, it, you know, it was from a different space or it was a, of a different quality. So I was extremely fortunate to have that kind of freedom, and I always have had, um, and I've never really been in a position where I felt that I had to produce something because you know, there was pressure to put some product out or something like that. In terms of the methodology of writing, um, what's significantly probably changed is I, I have a different approach to it now than I did when I was a younger person. Um, in those days, um, I would attempt to create a narrative. You know, things had a beginning and a middle and an end, kind of like a story or a novel. Mm -hmm. And now um, I try, I don't try, I just, the methodology now is I get myself out of the way and essentially whatever comes out, I write down and I worry about what it says later. And then um, I look at it and I realize what I've just written um, and what it means. So it just kind of flows out now. And the, the trick is, getting your, your, um, you know, it's kind of a Zen thing, you know, the Zen archery thing. Don't yeah. think about the arrow going to the target. You just don't think about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> what? So now you're, you're speaking specifically of lyrics in this sort of a process, right? You know, uh, interesting enough, you mentioned that song, the 1%, which mm -hmm. I really, really, really like that song. I truly, really do. I think it's one of the, I'm very, very proud of it. But <laughs> interestingly enough, when I first wrote it, musically, it was completely different. It was like a four-beat dirge. And, I, and I, I played it a few times when I was writing, and I went, oh, man, this is, this just fucking sucks. <laughs> I fucking hate this. And I'm like, you know, this is never going to fucking work in a million years. And I had this guitar lick kind of, that I've been just playing absent my I've been playing it for months. 
and it had been sort of sitting around. I went like, I gotta do something with this. Such a cool, like, I gotta do something with this. I gotta do something with this. And then suddenly I just went, wait a minute. You know, when you, when you want to say something that may be a little kind of tough, you know, you, you attract more flies with honey. So maybe if I actually took that lyric and I sort of folded it into this guitar lick that I really love, it would feel different. And so I did. And it, absolutely took off i just went wow this is great i love it the the whole concept of songwriting is so fascinating to me and uh, tom and i have been uh, doing a, a little beatles duo for the last several months and so we've really started to dig deep in into you know, mccartney lennon mccartney's songwriting and we found this little uh clip on youtube and it's george harrison in the process of writing the song something and John and Paul are there with them, and they're bouncing ideas off. And for the first 15 minutes, George is saying, I've got everything except the line where I go, something in the way she moves attracts me, and he had nothing. He had nothing. And they're bouncing off the craziest ideas, and you see the song go from this you know, skeleton to what has become one of the most beautiful songs of all time. And, mm-hmm. and there's just something about songwriting. Everybody does it differently. But it is, it, it is, it's like you mentioned, like art. And it's like watching somebody paint a Picasso, you know? Musically, the Beatles songs have always really fascinated me. Even, like the, like even the early stuff, because mm-hmm. the chords never, oh, they never fall the way you think they should. We're learning that real fast as Tom and I try to yeah. pick these songs up. It's like, where does that chord come from? Yeah, they're always in kind of like just odd little sequences and orders, and they're never really what you would expect. Yeah, it's and it's funny for such an influential band, you know, music, at least mainstream music, kind of went the other way in terms of it, it. It didn't take up that sort of clever little, you know, twist that the that the Beatles put on a lot of their tunes, and it seemed to get a little bit plainer as we went along. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something uh, about the one percent that I did want to touch on, um, and and that was you were talking about you know the interplay between the guitar. And then obviously the lyrics that accompany the tune and, and taking it from that dirge sort of thing to uh, I think something that I just I wanted to comment and and, and just let you know that it, it was amazing when you did bring those two things up about the, uh, about the tune, uh, because the two notes that I wrote down first on my first listen through were the beautiful guitar work, in particular, the solo and not just the, the the melody of the solo, but in behind there, there's slide or lap steel going on. And just the layers and the textures in that, I found really contrasted beautifully with the message of the song and some pretty plain lyrics. Like, I gotta wonder if it's fair, most of the world don't get their share. It's it's right there, it's in your face. But I think, as you said, you know, the one phrase you used, you, you catch more flies with honey. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I you know, while we had you here, I, I wanted to let you know those two things in particular really struck out for me, and I, I, I really love getting your perspective on you know the song it, itself, and that you did highlight you know both the guitar and the message uh, that was sort of wrapped around it. So um, it might the, interest you. To, it might interest you to know as well that it's live. You guys did that oh. live off the floor. Yep. Wow. Wow. Actually, all of the songs I do are live off the floor. That's what I'm looking for. That's so there's fantastic. A sense of, there's a sense of performance in them. But yeah, that's a live off the floor. That's a, like, a, you know, just basically, that's a take. We, 
You get the that's my theory of recording. You put people in a room that can play and you record them. Do you record on tape still? No, no, we we don't do that. Okay. Um, I was hoping you were gonna say, Yeah, we got the reel to reel set up. We're going, you know, eight track and bouncing all night. No, no, I think that uh, you know, Vasey I think still has, you know, a, a two inch machine somewhere in the building, but no, nobody does that anymore. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's unwieldy. Uh, but you know, like we will do what um, folks do, which is uh, when you're doing final mixing, if you don't like the sound of the of the digital result, then you run it through an A seventy seven or something to get the uh, tape compression. I, I haven't done that because, frankly, I honestly don't notice the difference. <laughs> <laughs> but to uh, uh... Elaborate on what Tom was asking you about the guitar playing on the song. Um, did you, Tom? Was there a specific angle, or did you just want to tell him you just thought it was amazing guitar playing? Uh, no, I just wanted. I just wanted because when when he was speaking about, it, he brought up both the sort of how the song came to be around the guitar and how we got the lyrics in there. I just wanted to comment on uh, and and thank him for it because you know the fact that he brought it up. I just wanted to let him know that that's those are the two things that stuck out to me and and. I think to anybody that listens to this tune, those will be the two things that really hit you first. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Tom. I appreciate that very much. As a matter of fact, you know, it's it it almost wasn't um, going to be the like the we did the like the dance double A kind of video release, pending like eventually there being a, a collection on the album, and there was another song that I was going to shoot instead of that one, and Denise, my charming and lovely wife, said no. <laughs> you should do that one. You should absolutely do that one. Never say and no to your wife. Went like, well, yeah, but 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 you know the American election and that. And see, I had this other song called "Shining City on the Hill." Oh, jeez. And I, oh, I was wow. going like, I have to. No, I got to put this out. It's like you know, it's going to be the theme song of the Democratic National Convention. I have to put it out. It's important. <laughs> and she was going, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> the other one's just better. I don't know if it's better, but I think it's it's certainly a it's it, it's certainly it, wonderful. It, it, yeah, it's about a more timeless. Well, I'm not sure if it. I, I really don't. You'll you'll have to hear "Shining City on the Hill" and make up your own mind. I think <laughs> "Shining City on the Hill" is a really really good song too. Honestly. Well, how can we get that, or how can the people that are listening now get a hold of your new singles? Well, um, I'm in the process of. Um, I've actually cut that song and several others. Uh, they're not mixed yet, but I'm just sort of uh, doing the final kind of put it together with True North Records and you know running a budget to finish the record and such. So you know there will be a there will be a record and that'll be on it, and it probably won't be in the too distant future. But I, you know I might I might release another song in advance. I'm not quite sure. Well, listen, Murray, uh, it was an absolute pleasure chatting with you again. Uh, you were on my radio show maybe about a year ago, and uh, it's good to, to connect with you again and, and share this. And I uh, really appreciate you standing up and, and delivering this message, which I don't think uh, can be done enough uh, in this day and age we're living in right now. So, again, thank you so much for your time. Hey, you know, throw the rock in the pond and the ripple spread in every direction. That's that's what I'm all about. Let's sort of like, I put those songs out early because I thought they needed to be heard. And uh, I really appreciate, appreciate you guys, you know, you know, appreciating them. And uh, I'm very grateful for your uh, support. I really am. 
There is Murray McLaughlin and uh, Tom. It's a true gentleman and, and a great talent. And I know some of our younger listeners may not be all that familiar with a, a lot of what he did, uh, but he was a pretty prominent artist uh, throughout the uh, 70s, not just in Canada, but I think he did pretty well across the board. So uh, great to have him on the show. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some wonderful perspectives. And it's, you know, it's really cool, just his whole approach. You know, everything from his studio approach and sort of like the, the whole one-take thing to, to him, like, sitting back now and actually trying to get out there and put a positive message. It's, it's pretty inspiring. Absolutely. So just a reminder that we are going to be chatting with, hopefully, Alan Frew on next week's show to talk about the new Glass Tiger Christmas album. We're also in the process of lining up a chat with uh, hopefully more than one member of Triumph, but I know Gil Moore is in, and uh, we're looking to see if we can get, wouldn't it be cool if we get a freaking reunion and get Gil and Mike on there as well, but we're, we're working on it. We're working crossed. on it. Yes, and of course, Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go is coming up as well. we got some big shows coming up before the end of the year, so if you are a music fan, uh, get the word out. If you know anyone that's a music fan, tell them you want to stay tuned and, and listen, and then hopefully soon be watching sessions, Tom. Lots of good stuff coming from people. All right. Once again, a big thanks to our guest, Murray McLaughlin. Thomas, a big thank you to you as well. And folks, thank you so much for making us a part of your week. That's all the time we have for today's show. Until next time, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. I'm Casey Kasem.